you're listening to The Carrero Podcast. I'm Malia Hoffman, and I'm here with Fred Ramirez. Today, our guest is Christy Pattengill-Semmons. Dr. Pattengill-Semmons is a Reef Environmental Education Foundation's co-executive director of science and engagement. She has been with Reef for almost 30 years and has overseen the expansion of its citizen science fish monitoring program over the last two decades. Christy's role at Reef intersects citizen science, education, and conservation, engaging Reef's members to advance the organization's mission of protecting biodiversity and ocean life. She oversees all aspects of the Volunteer Fish Survey Project, facilitates the incorporation of Reef's citizen science data into resource management policy and the scientific literature, and regularly leads expeditions as part of Reef's Field Survey Trips program. She is also a member of the Women's Diver Hall of Fame. If you'd like to follow her on Facebook, you can find her at reef.org, spelled R-E-E-F. Hi, Christy. Thanks for joining us today. So tell us a little bit about where you're from and if that influenced you to become a marine biologist. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm excited to be here. It's it's a um, yeah, a lot of scuba divers are from landlocked places, and I'm one of those. <laughs> um, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and so definitely not on the ocean, but like a lot of Arizonians, I guess, they <laughs> made pilgrimage to the beach in the summertime to escape the heat, and um, actually my uh, we would come often to San Diego, which is where I live now, um, but in my, yeah, my childhood every summer we were at the beach somewhere in California. And so that introduced me to the ocean at an early age. And then, um, definitely just through, um, different opportunities and experiences when I was pretty young, decided that I wanted to go into marine biology and become a scuba diver. So, so one of, one of the things that I'm always interested in, and, 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 and I hope we don't get off this trajectory. Um, so did you become a certified diver before or after becoming a marine biologist? After I decided, but I decided that that was my path pretty early, like when I was in grade school and I got certified to dive when I was in high school. Oh, nice. So I wasn't technically a marine scientist until I guess I would consider myself, you know, I, that's what I, I majored in in undergraduate. So. And, and, and share with us your, the, your first experiences underwater. In. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, my first diving opportunities and experiences were off Catalina Island, um, oh. off the coast of California and, and, um, you know, beautiful kelp forests, amazing rocky reefs and cold water. But that was what I knew, it, you know, going to the beach when I was a kid in California, it didn't, you know, it didn't really occur to me that, uh, you know, it was pretty cold, but <laughs> it was, uh, you know, just a, the kelp forest ecosystems are so dynamic and it's, it's, you know, people were like kind of equated to diving, you know, in a forest, you know, a tr- like a, a, a terrestrial forest, you know, and it is really that this three dimensional structure and beautiful light coming through the kelp leaves. And, and, you know, I, I, I did those as part of at Catalina Island Marine Institute. Um, and so I was with a bunch of other uh, people who became my friends, you know, three or four weeks at a time in the summer, getting to go diving in high school. It's pretty, pretty fun. Um, so yeah, just starting to learn the, the critters there. And, um, and then I really continued on being able to scuba dive off the coast of California in college, I stayed a semester. I lived for a whole semester on Catalina again um, at the Marine Science Lab there and got to um, do a whole series of undergraduate college courses. It was really, that became kind of my, the foundation of my diving career was was off those rocky reef kelp forests of Catalina Island. And and then where where did you do your do your undergrad? And can you tell us about the process that it that it takes in order to become a marine biologist? Because I'm I'm in I'm in contact with 
with with a lot of high school students and and, and also undergrads mm-hmm. interested in the marine biology field. So so can yeah. you talk about that? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I that I wish I would have known as I was looking for programs was, you know, it's not necessarily biology programs you're looking for unless they specifically have a marine science um, component to them. Uh, so, you know, a lot of other similar degree paths like wildlife and fisheries, conservation biology, um, there are some that truly are a marine science degree. Um, for me, I went to University of Southern California, USC, and got a biology degree with a marine science emphasis. And that was basically through, because the USC had the marine lab on Catalina Island. So I was able to do all my upper division classes there that focused on marine science. Um, But, you know, in hindsight, which was an amazing opportunity, you know, probably there would have been a better pathway at USC and other places. Because in biology, if you're just doing straight biology, you end up often it's you and a bunch of people who are planning to go to medical school. So, um, you know, finding one of those more wildlife and fisheries or um, conservation science, those types of programs, you end up probably with a a more relevant course, you know, set of courses that, you know, you need the basic biology, but being able to get ecology and, um, you know, other other relevant courses. I didn't know that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so the key, I think, is, you know, Looking at schools that have marine labs, not necessarily on site, a lot of them have affiliations with marine labs at other places, um, and then finding programs that aren't necessarily, you know, geared towards primarily the pre-med, which is typically biology. Have you seen changes over the years with marine science since you began? Um, I mean, there's certainly a lot more out there than there was when I was applying for schools. Um, A lot more, you know, uh, lots of programs at different universities, different, um, more, you know, opportunities through internships and scholarships. And it's definitely, you know, more widely um, accessible than it was, I think, you know, and when I, I was in college in 90, uh, when 93, 1989 to 93 is when I did my undergrad. And so over 30 years ago, it's changed through from that for the better, I think more accessible and more, you know, a variety of different places, types of schools that offer it. Now, one of the things that I'm, that I'm always interested in and, and, and curious about was, um, you know, now we, we call all these programs STEM, you know, they're all under this umbrella mm-hmm. and we're, and we're really trying to, to, to bring more females and also ethnic, ethnic minorities into, into STEM. How was it then for you? Yeah. Um, for me, you know, it was, um, trying to think about my cohort at, at the, at the USC Marine Lab. And it was definitely pretty well balanced um, with males and females and, and some diversity because USC, you know, is it's a kind of patterned of the, the diversity of the school probably pretty well. But um, nowadays, it's really interesting. The marine science field is, I would say, dominated by women. It's, um, you know, yeah, I mean, it's um, at Reef, the organization that I help run, we have a, an internship program. And yeah, the it's been that way for years. The number of applicants, female applicants, far outweighs um, other genders, for sure. <laughs> um, but, you know, diversity, that's there's still a lot of work to do there um, in terms of, you know, ethnic um diversity, you know, being able to have accessibility, there's a lot of work that's going into that through DEI initiatives at different universities and different programs. And in the, you know, scuba diving world, trying to get it, it's very, it was not very common in the past for people of color to, to be scuba divers for all sorts of systemic reasons. So there's, there's some great groups that are trying to break through that and help 
bring in people of color into scuba diving and also into the marine sciences. So you mentioned your work with the Reef uh, Environmental Education Foundation. Can you share mm-hmm. with us your career path and then what what led you to become the co-director of it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that uh, I did an internship actually when I was um, in between undergraduate, my undergraduate program and my PhD program. I knew I wanted to get my doctorate. Um, and so I'd already been accepted into a, a PhD program at Texas A&M, which is where I, I did my postgrad work. And in between those two degrees, I did an internship through, it was through the Nature Conservancy, but that was the year that Reef was was starting its, um, as an organization and starting the Citizen Science Volunteer Fish Monitoring Program that we have called the Volunteer Fish Survey Project. Um, the program was designed for divers and snorkelers to collect data on fish populations all around the world, kind of like doing for bird or for fish what bird watchers have done for birds. No. Um, and that program was being the, the folks who were starting that had gotten a lot of scientific um, advice and consultation from the Nature Conservancy and NOAA Fisheries, the federal agency. And so it just happened. I got really lucky, kind of right place, right time, got connected through this Nature Conservancy internship and ended up in the Florida Keys for the summer. Lovely. And that was, yeah, so that was the summer that Reef was just kicking off the, the fish survey project. And I ended up down there for the summer. That was the first time I'd, I'd experienced tropical warm water <laughs> after all those years of diving off Catalina and makes it hard to go back <laughs> after doing a lot of tropical warm diving. Yeah, that was going to be my next um, question. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it's, you know, it's all, I remember, and this also strikes me every time I, I go diving still, but the tropics are really, the waters are really loud. The temperate rocky reefs are not loud like that. And it's loud because of the, mostly it's snapping shrimp and other fishes, but mostly snapping shrimp that you don't see, but you just hear them in the water. It's, um, so I remember doing one of those first dives in Key Largo. I was like, God, wow, down mm-hmm. here. Um, but yeah, so that was, I was, uh, lucky enough to spend the summer and got ingrained into the, the reef program right from the start. That's, I met my husband there, um, and kind of set my path, my journey on a whole new path. Um, so by the time I got to Texas A&M, I had not really a clear kind of project taxa interest in mind before I got there. But after spending that summer working on coral reef fishes, I, definitely had a, a new a new interest a new desire to work on that so I after that for that summer of interning I stayed involved with reef and um, in the, the progress by the time the, the organization really kicked off and and through my time at Texas A&;M continued to work with them so actually after I finished my degree I was hired by reef at the at the time as their um, science coordinator it was kind of the first scientist they had on staff and I've been with them ever since. So it's the one and only job I've ever had. Um, but it's you must been, love it. Yeah. So that was in 1998 that I started with them and through the years, um, just, you know, helping see the organization grow, overseeing the expansion of, of the volunteer fish survey project all around the world. It started in the Caribbean, Florida, Western Atlantic. And now we have the project going in oceans all around the world and everywhere except for the arctics i guess and um yeah so it's been amazing to be to be part of that organization and see it grow and flourish into the amazing organization it is today and i'm lucky enough to help run it now you know and so then you you you've seen a lot of changes what what is a common myth about the marine science industry Mm. Uh, one common myth is you can't get a job. Okay. Everybody says, you know, when, if, you know, people say, oh, my kid wanted to be a marine biologist, like, you know, they, there's not going to be any jobs for them. And I think there's so many different, I mean, that's definitely, it, you know, like any field, um, especially in the sciences, there's, you know, there are a lot of different pathways. People, I think, have a pretty narrow view if you're not, you know, familiar with 
all of the different ways that you can be a marine scientist. It's not just, you know, whatever. Some people have thoughts that it's just you're training dolphins or you're saving <laughs> sharks or or being a, fa- a, you know, a college professor. But there's all these different, you know, marine conservation nonprofit organizations. There's, you know, teaching colleges where you can teach other inspiring, you know, aspiring uh, students. Um, uh, consulting firms that go out and do environmental assessments. Um, and so there's all these different pathways. It's not um, maybe what you think of when you necessarily think about being a marine scientist, but lots of opportunities um, fish in the you know fisheries, um, oceanography. So there's many different ways to, to go. So that's, I think one myth is that you won't, you know, you can't get a job or you won't make any money. I mean, it's, you know, if you're in the nonprofit world, like any, in any sector of the nonprofit world, it's, you know, you're not in it for the money. (laughs) Um, but it's the same as kind of anything else. Um, yeah. And then the, you know, probably another myth is that, um, I have to be really good at science or math or, you know, that there's lots of different pathways that you can become a marine scientist without, you know, having that view of being the typical really strong in math and science kind of realm. I mean, you know, it's a, you have to have an interest in it, but the, the breadth of courses that you'll take, you know, you kind of can find your, you know, whether you're, more interested in the ecology, natural history side of things, or more the, you know, physical, chemical, biochemistry kind of thing. There's a lot of different ways that you can take marine science. Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, probably not, maybe sometimes a myth is that, you know, I have to be comfortable on boats or I have to be a scuba diver. Neither one of those things are true. You know, a lot of people are marine scientists who don't ever go out on boats or don't don't dive or snorkel. So hmm. that's interesting. In your yeah. bio, you mentioned that you regularly lead expeditions as part of the field trip survey trips um, program. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of the most fun parts of my job is teaching, teaching others about fish and you know, ocean ecosystems and behavior of fishes and uh, we have, as I said, the fish survey project, we have programs all over the world now. So I get usually between one and four trips a year that I, I lead. And those are basically eco dive vacations that, um, volunteers come on and we're doing, you know, we do daily fish ID classes or multiple times a day, um, talking about what we've been seeing, teaching people about, how to differentiate different species of fishes, different families of fishes, um, talk about the behaviors that we're seeing. Um, and then on, in, when we're not talking about it, we're diving um, and snorkeling to, to do, and during the time then in the water, we're doing fish surveys. So it's, it's very similar to doing a, a, you know, go bird watching, but you're fish watching. So you're keeping track of all the fish that you see that you can positively identify and Reef has a whole series of um, survey materials that help support that. So it's a slate with this kind of plasticized underwater paper and a regular pencil, and you check off what you're seeing as you swim around the reef or the kelp forest. And then when you're after the dive, you kind of finish off about how many you saw of each of all the species in categories. So it's not actually like physically counting every individual fish. It's more fun than that. So you're just kind of roving around the reef and then you keep track of about how many you saw, whether it's single, if you just saw one, few would be under 10, many is 11 to 100 and abundant would be more than 100. And then you submit all those data, each survey gets submitted to reef. So we, on our, on those reef trips, we're, you know, doing the surveys, we're teaching and then entering the data all on those trips. So yeah, it's my, it's a really fun part of my job it's a big perk to get to not only go out in the field and get to dive in some really interesting and amazing places but also be with really interested and engaged people it's super inspiring to to be with people who really are interested and have want to 
have a depth of knowledge about what they're seeing. And, you know, we hear all the time that it just, it completely changes the way that people's experience in the water, you know, really opens their eyes to, to what's there. And a lot of people say, you know, I was a diver and I got, I was just getting bored and I just felt like, you know, everything's the same. And then once I started doing reef surveys, I realized like, it's, that's so, you know, I'm never bored and I could dive on the same site a hundred times and find different stuff every time. And, you know, there's always more to find people who have done thousands of reef surveys, still find new things that they've never seen before. So there's always something new to see. We've had lots of reef volunteers find new species that have been undescribed and I don't, you know, led to working with scientists and actually getting them described. We've even had a couple of our volunteers have fish named after them because of that. So it's really fun to be with reef people. They're, it's satisfying. They, they're so, they love learning and, you know, it's just a, it's a great way to be with like-minded, um, you know, ocean advocates. Yeah. Well, I would, I would, I would think that, that it would be difficult to do these reef surveys on drift dives. Um, mm, so. Yeah. Yeah. It, it does depend. So our divers definitely, we end up, you know, especially if it's a fast drift dive and the water is moving you along you'll often see our divers have turned themselves around and are basically kicking into the current so they can kind yeah. of, you know, keep track. And then they'll, t- they'll let, they'll kind of let themselves go and drift a little and then turn back into the current and keep track of things. But yeah, it's, it's not ideal to be in strong current, but it is possible yeah. to, to do reef surveys. And it really depends too on the, um, you know, the, how species rich an area is because if there's um you know just hundreds of species and you're going pretty it's harder to kind of do an accurate survey because you're missing so many of them but yeah it's yeah can you can you talk about your your grouper moon project and yeah and, and why it's so um important yeah absolutely the grouper moon project is a it's one of reefs programs you know the the cornerstone program the the program that started the organization was the volunteer fish survey project the surveying program we've been talking about um through the years a couple of programs have grown out of that one is the grouper moon project and one is our invasive species program and and both of those have come out of as you have surveyors who are who like i said you know they're they're really engaged they're they have a increased awareness about what's going on during their dives. And um, the group of moon project came actually as a result, we had a group of people as part of a reef trip, one of those field survey trips on little Cayman Island in the Cayman Islands um, in the Caribbean in two, 2001, I believe it was. And it had been just in the early like winter and it had just been right after um, a Nassau grouper, which is a type of uh, reef fish in the Caribbean. It's a it's pretty top predator. It's kind of the lions and tigers of the reef the groupers are in the Caribbean. And one of the, the Nassau grouper is a pretty iconic, you know, they're always found on Wish You Were Here postcards and yeah. on a lot of magazine covers and stuff. Pretty well-known fish. Um, but their numbers have declined pretty dramatically through the Caribbean in the last several decades because while they're normally solitary and territorial, so they're they're a, a predator, you know, they kind of have a, a territory and you don't really see, they're all spread out. So you don't see a bunch of Nassau grouper in one spot. But in the winter full moons, they all Nassau grouper do this and several other species of grouper and some other snappers will leave their home reef and, and migrate to a, a set location along with all the other of that species at a very predictable time and they go to this predictable spot every year to spawn to reproduce and that's their only reproductive they're not they're not doing reproduction at other times of the year on the reef otherwise so it's a pretty critical part of keeping the species you know growing because that's the only time they're reproducing um because grouper are they're really eco- ecologically important on reefs, but they're also economically pretty valuable. People, they really like, you know, people like to eat them. 
you know, grouper are on a lot of menus in the Caribbean and in Southern U.S. And when you, it's kind of an irresistible draw, if you, you know, they're pretty hard to catch during the regular year because they're territorial and spread out. So you've got, you know, thousands of, of grouper in one spot at a very predictable time for Nassau grouper that happens to be around the winter full moons of January, February, or March, depending on where you are in the Caribbean. So for the Cayman Islands, it had, they those aggregations, along with most of the Caribbean, have been relatively fished to exhaustion, basically, because you can fish them so easily and so quickly, um, it's easy to, you know, over-harvest them really quick. And so the Nassau grouper as a population have gone down throughout the Caribbean. They were um, listed as endangered by the IUCN Red List, and it was almost exclusively because of fishing on those spawning aggregations. In the Cayman Islands, there had been five spawning aggregations that through the years had become effectively extinct. They, they were no longer worth fishing because numbers were so low. Um, but that year in 2001, fishermen kind of discovered what they called a new aggregation, but it was really an old aggregation that had probably kind of collapsed and had they'd stopped fishing it. And then through the years, it kind of had built back up. Um, fishermen discovered this aggregation off the west end of Little Cayman and fished it um, pretty heavily over the course of about 10 days, took about 2,000 fish, um, which is pretty devastating. And, you know, Cayman Islands is a pretty small country and there's not really enough demand for 2,000 fish. So a lot of the fish went were wasted because they, you know, restaurants weren't buying, you know, they just, the fishermen couldn't sell them fast enough to, to, so it was, it was, it was a, an eye-opening event that had just happened when our reef surveyors were there. And, um, so that it was pretty upsetting. And, and so our staff member who was leading the reef trip at the time, she got in touch with the Cayman Islands Department of Environment and said, you know, we want to work with you. We want to, this, you know, we got to figure out what's happening with that aggregation. Let's try and protect it. You know, where are the fish coming from? Let's, you know, are they Caymanian fish? Are they, there was a lot of unknowns about aggregation ecology at the time for Nassau grouper. And so we formed, and, and the Department of Environment was very interested in that and agreed that, you know, if, after losing all their aggregations once, if they could, if they could step in and help save this aggregation, that was worth doing. Um, so that the Grouper Moon Project started that year, and um, the following year, in 2002, we did our first field work there um, on the aggregation. And ever since then, it's been a collaboration between Reef and the Cayman Islands Department of Environment. Annual field efforts. Um, they helped. The Cayman government implemented an initial eight-year fishing ban to kind of halt any. Um, fishing while we kind of figured out and did the science to figure out like, you know, what is there an acceptable level of fishing that could happen on the aggregation or, you know, and where are the fish coming from? Because a lot of fishermen thought they were, you know, migrating from all over. They were coming from Cuba. They were coming from Dominican Republic. They were coming from Jamaica, but it turns out through our research, they're all Caymanian fish. So it, it, it you know, is really valuable for the Caymanians to save and not fish that spawning irrigation because it has a direct impact back on their reefs. And um, so, yeah, through the years we've, you know, it's it's been everything from very simple, you know, just literally counting the number of Nassau grouper and documenting when they spawn to some pretty high tech, super cool, um, you know, we're doing drifter surveys looking at where the larvae go once the, the fish spawn. We put drifter buoys in the water to see, you know, is are the the spawning is the spawning feeding a bunch of other places or is it mostly feeding back to the Cayman Islands? And it's mostly feeding back to the Cayman Islands yeah. with a you know enough that it's probably having a great impact on the rest of the region as well. But the the fish tend to spawn at times it's variable, you know, it's always winter full moons, but sometimes they spawn 
five days after full moon. Sometimes it's nine days after full moon. And so a lot of that drifter research went into trying to figure out what the fish are queuing in on. And it seems to be current. Current seemed to, to tell the, because the, they, they seem to spawn on the nights when the, the currents are such that it's going to keep the larvae close to the island or at least bring them back pretty quickly. Because um, we would release drifters on nights that they didn't spawn and the drifters would kind of go all off in different directions. And then the nights they spawned, there were these eddies that the drifters would get caught in. So who knows how the fish are queuing in on that, but they that's cool. they seem to be. Yeah, it's really cool. So there's been a lot of, you know, our most recent work that we're doing now is called Grouper Spotter, which is basically using facial recognition um, for the NASA grouper. To That's be able to, cool. I, to, to use, because we've been doing some, to be able to estimate populations rather than the count, you know, every single, because that was easier to do when the population was pretty small, but it's actually, now the, the aggregations have been closed to all fishing pretty much since that, that initial eight-year ban, and then it was extended, and now it's in law that you can't fish at aggregations. You can fish at other times a year. Um, and the numbers are really, I mean, those, the, the spawning population on Little Cayman has gone from a couple thousand after they, the harvest happens, that initial harvest, to I think our numbers are close to 9,000 Nassau grouper at the Little Cayman spawning aggregation site, which is just so cool to see, you know. So it's a big conservation success story. Um, you know, it's certainly having a positive impact on the Nassau grouper throughout the Caribbean. Um, but also, especially in the Cayman Islands, you know, fishermen can see the, they, you know, at first there was a lot of people upset about, well, we've always fished aggregations, you know, since we found this one, we should be able to do that. Um, but now seeing the results that there's so many Nassau group on the reefs during the regular year and fishermen have success fishing them, that it's, you know, you know, yeah. you, know you, all this is, is reminding me of, how how many years I would you know I would see these photos from from the 1950s of of, of people diving for black for black sea bass mm -hmm. bass here. yeah like these like, like these big monolith fish and then mm -hmm. and then and then pretty soon I was I would you know that was that was one of the fish that I always always wanted to see but but there's like there's hardly you know any any left and now during during the past I'd say about eight years. Um, off of Casino Point, there's always like one or two just hanging out. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, can you can you talk about how how environmental policy is uh, how that you know how that works and why it's why it's um, vital? Yeah, absolutely. The other the giant sea bass, even though they're not technically a, a grouper, they they look very much like the Goliath grouper of the of the Caribbean. And similar, really giant, huge monolithic fish um, that their numbers were pretty devastated by trophy hunting, essentially. Correct. Same with the black sea bass here. And um, some protections have, had been put in place to help that population recover. And and they they have really worked um, for the black sea bass. It's, you know, whereas you never would see them, as you said. And now there's there's some off here of San Diego, you can see them especially certain times of year when they come in close to shore. And um, yeah, you know, uh, fisheries uh, policy, really having the data to be able to guide um, developing meaningful policies that are going to help rebound, you know, fish populations to, to grow and be sustainable Um really need you need data and so that's one of the great things that um reef the reef fish survey project that's been that was kind of why it was created was to create was to generate a data set that otherwise wouldn't be available you know all the divers and snorkelers who are in the water every day to be able to contribute to a data set that can be used and that has actually been the case for the goliath grouper the species that i mentioned that's um it had it had also been decimated by trophy hunting um, and almost 20, I guess over 20 years ago now, it, it was completely, there was a no take put on, on Goliath grouper and um, reef data have helped document the recovery of that species. And 
it's been great to be able to see those kinds of uses for the reef data. It's not just a really great activity that, you know, helps engage individuals and makes them better ocean advocates and, but also, you know, contributing to a data set that can be useful, but you know, that, so one of the tricks of um, good marine policy is getting the, you know, the data needed to be able to make the assessments and, for some species, it's more available than others, easier to get than others. But, the, you know, it's nice, those success stories like the the recovery of the Nassau grouper in the Cayman Islands, the slow recovery of Goliath grouper and giant sea bass here in off of the coast of California, just show that, you know, if there is science-based protections in place, they do generally seem to work as long as there's compliance and and um, you know enforcement of those rules. Uh, marine protected areas, you know, that's a lot of work's gone into marine protected area science over the years to try and figure out how big you know a, a, an area needs to be in the ocean to be able to protect to kind of make it you know a, a refuge basically for the species that inhabit that. But then the the goal of marine protected areas is not just to protect those species inside that whatever size bubble, but then have it be big enough that the spillover happens to, you know, the, the reproduction activity that's happening inside that MPA impacts areas outside of the marine protected area, because that's what we really want. You know, you don't, it's conservation marine policy is not about restricting take period you know, full stop. It's about making useful, meaningful decisions that can help, you know, all users have access to the resources, whether it's non-consumptive users, divers and circlers and kayaker, kayakers, you know, being able to look, look over the side and, you know, see the leopard sharks off of the coast here, or, um, but also for recreational and commercial take. So in 2021, you were elected into the Women's Divers Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. How did you hear about your honor and what does it mean to you? Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. It was really, I, it was, it was, it, yeah, it was uh, quite a, quite an honor, really humbling to kind of know to be in the same, you know, circle as a lot of the women who are in, in the Women's Diver Hall of Fame. Um and it, I, I was nominated by actually one of the um, the chair of the Reef Board of Directors, um, Anna Deloach, an, a longtime friend and accomplished diver. And yeah, she's she has um, and her husband Ned have done these amazing fish ID books and fish behavior books. And it was quite an honor just to even be nominated, let alone um, be accepted into the hall. Um, and yeah, it's just knowing that there's this entity that, you know, celebrates and lifts up women's contributions to um, the field of scuba diving and to be honored as part of, you know, in, in recognition of the work that I've done is, you know, through marine conservation and, and uh, enabling divers to contribute to this meaningful conservation program through reef is, it was, it was pretty great. And, you know, because unlike we were talking earlier about the field of marine science and how it's really dominated by women, the diving industry is not. Correct. Diving industry is very not. And, you know, it, it even today, you know, it, it's getting better. But I was just at the at DEMA, the dive trade show, big dive, dive industry show a couple weeks ago. And, you know, it's, I mean, just seeing the it's still pretty male dominated. So it's nice to have an organization like the women divers hall of fame to be able to celebrate and lift up and, and make others realize, you know, women that, that there are many avenues that you can be a, a scuba diver and, and make an impact to make a difference on people's lives and science and discovery. And yeah, there's the types of all the, all the members, you know, such a breadth of, you know, there's women who are in the military, there's women who are explorers, you know, deep cave systems and 
that kind of those divers, there's people like me who are more on the science and conservation side um, and kind of everything in between. So it really is a great, I think, honor certainly to be included. And it's a great organization to be able to celebrate all those different contributions that women have to diving. So what are, what are some things that you would wish to tell people about our oceans? Yeah. I, you know, um, the oceans are, we're all in, we're all tied to the oceans, regardless of how close you physically live to them. They're, they're, you know, huge impact on our climate. The ecosystems in them are, you know, some of the most biodiverse in the world. It's obviously a very important food source for um, many communities. So it's the, it's long-term trajectory right now is not looking good. It's, it's for all sorts of reasons. And I think whatever we can do, you know, small impacts to big changes to be able to help start to um, try and see a more healthy future for the oceans is really important to all of us, regardless of whether you, you know, live by the ocean, whether you eat fish, whether you scuba dive or not, it's really important. And understanding the, the connectivity that we all have to the oceans, I think is something that, you know, gaining a, a better understanding of that is something that reefs always trying to do, you know, through education and outreach to share with others, the, the treasures of the ocean. Do you have a top three places to dive? Oh. <laughs> well, little Cayman for sure, because it's been such a great part of our lives with the group Moon project. Um, you know, I've gotten the privilege to go there just about every year since that project started. And um, my husband, uh, Bryce, has been, he's one of the lead scientists, and we brought all of our kids there in the field with us when they were little. And so that's, that's got a lot of special, special place in my heart. Um, let's see, um, where else? You know, it's kind of wherever my current trip is, you know, it's, it's, it's just there's so many cool places i you know probably the tropical pacific um the solomon islands is is really amazing um they just underwater spectacular the number of fish amazing the topside culture they're just beautiful the the communities and the people and the villages there so neat um i'm gonna get to i'm doing a reef trip there next spring and really looking forward to getting back there have you done um, the reef then, in uh, Roatan? Have I been to the reef in Roatan? Yeah. Yeah, I did a, a trip four or five, no, more than that, a while back, um, and did all the Bay Islands, so Roatan and Utila and Bernaha. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and those, I mean, fish diversity there is really cool. It's There's a lot of stuff in the Bay Islands and off Honduras that you don't see in other parts of the Caribbean, so... It's, that's pretty neat. Yeah, that was one of my favorites. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I guess maybe for a third one, you know, going back to my temperate roots, um, the Azores is an amazing place. Um, so the Azores are, for people who don't know, it's a, a little chain of islands. Um, they're owned by Portugal. They're Portuguese. They're about two-thirds of the way across the Atlantic. If you, you know, head out from Boston towards Spain, about two-thirds of the way across, you hit the Azores and um, they're just amazing islands. The culture is really fun. It's like, you know, great Portuguese, um, but the underwater life is a lot like California, but very different. It's this weird like cross with the Mediterranean and it's kind of cold and rocky, but there's tropical fish. There's parrotfish there. The European parrotfish is just a stunning fish. uh, you know, the rain, uh, rainbow wrasse, uh, all sorts of cool ray or um, eels, and I just love it. We've been to the Azores several times, three times, I think. That's cool. And, there's a mili- There's an Air Force base there too. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and it's it's um, the island that I've spent the most time on. Um, Fayal is the area. That, there's a harbor there that it's kind of the first place. It, if you're sailing across and doing the transatlantic sail, uh, which a lot of people do, they'll, 
to leave the East Coast of the U.S. and head to the Mediterranean. And that's the very first place you get after a long crossing, you know, you often like 15 or 20 days. And then they get to the this Fayal, this area. And so it's really, it, there's some, you know, neat, they get off the boat after being sailing and not seeing anything for a while. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's really neat. That's neat pretty cool. Um, you, you know, we've been, you know, you were, you were talking about invasive fish and, and my, and my nonprofit, um, we've been going to you, you till now, um, we're going mm-hmm. there for like the fifth time in June. Oh, okay. And, and we've been, um, you know, but talking, talking to a lot of the NGOs there about the lionfish and, mm-hmm. and how do you, how do you feel about, um, should we just kill them all and not, and, and not think twice? Um, or, um, since they're not a native species there, how, you know, because I have different thoughts, but, but I'm, but I'm not uh, from a marine science type of position. Yeah. Well, so yeah, we talked earlier about how the volunteer fish survey project was kind of reefs cornerstone. And then through that, through two programs, the group of moon project, and then the invasive species project. And, and that one, you know, if you think about reef surveyors we're teaching people about marine life and what they see and what belongs there and that it 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 wasn't really set out to be this but it the reef data set has been a great source of tracking for non-native species and so and obviously the lionfish in the caribbean is the the most famous one the most um, impactful one in our lifetime so far it's kind of considered the first marine fish species to have successfully really invaded and impacted an an ecosystem. And I would say, uh, so we have been kind of at the forefront of doing um, early detection, rapid response, helping different countries develop their plans, doing a lot of research on the impacts, you know, is it a waste of time to try and just kill all the lionfish on a reef if they just come back, you know, and what, what kind, where do you put your very limited resources in trying to minimize the impact? There's no doubt lionfish are very impactful, very negatively impactful for Caribbean reefs. So all things being equal, yes, the goal should always be to eradicate as best we can. We're not ever, lionfish are always going to be part of the Caribbean ecosystem now. They're not going to go away. There's no full eradication that can happen. Um, that's pretty much agreed upon. They're just too widespread in two. They're really, they're a perfect invader. That That's what people say about them because they can live, you know, in thousands of feet deep. They can live in super hyper saline water. They can live in super, you know, almost near fresh water. Um, so they're just, they're really flexible and in, in um, where they can live and the types of conditions, cold water, they're found all the way up in the, you know, the Eastern seaboard up off New England. Um, And so it's, it's bad, you know, they, they definitely should not be left on a reef ever just because, Oh, they're pretty or, you know, does it really matter? Cause they can, they invasive species in their invaded range typically are successful because they, you know, don't, they don't have a, um, they behave in a lot of different ways outside of how they would normally in their native range. So lionfish in the Caribbean reproduce basically daily in their native range. And in Indo-Pacific, it's like monthly or, or a couple times a year. So, and the amount of eggs that they're producing is way more than they do in their native range the size their size their maximum size the largest lionfish caught in the caribbean is like a third larger than it has ever been documented in the native range of the species so they're just and they're voracious predators so that's really where their impact comes in is that they're so they can just they can really change quickly um the number of fish on a reef because they just eat all the time. They're gluttons. You know, if you um, catch lionfish and dissect them, they're full of, of fat globules because they're just glutton, gluttonous eaters. They'll eat as much as they can. Um, so that's really the impact that we're trying to 
minimized. And yes, you know, removals, consistent removals has been shown to definitely make a difference. They're not going to completely eliminate lionfish from a reef, but if you can get the lionfish populations down to a, a knock it down c- continuously, they have a, a much less, a very pretty minimal impact on the, on the native ecosystem. So, um, you know, the, the, um, and there's certain species that are much more impacted than others, but definitely, you know, the, the smaller species are important for overall biodiversity, but then they're also impacting grouper and snapper species that are already under threat for other reasons, you know, fishing and ag- the spawning aggregation fishing and over harvesting. So, you, you know, those, those species really don't need one more nail in the coffin kind of. <laughs> so anything we can do to help keep the lionfish populations down, I would say is worth, worth doing. All right. Well, this was super informative. We always yeah. ask our guests, um, the last question is what your call to action is. So what would you like to mm. leave our listeners with from you? Yeah. Um, let's see. My call to action would be um, to do to, to learn more about what you can do to help ensure healthy oceans. And that can be, you know, something as small as, um, you know, being a more informed seafood consumer to making, you know, better choices on reusable, you know, um, reducing plastic consumption because plastic, you know, is a big threat in the oceans to, you know, going out and changing the world by becoming a, you know, policymaker. So, and everything in between. (laughs) Great. Well, Christy, thanks so much. This was great. This was um, really fun to learn about your expertise and your experiences and appreciate your work in in the area of, you know, ocean science. And um, yeah, appreciate your time today. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. It was fun. Mm -hmm.